Tonight's reading is from 2 Samuel 1 to 15, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of the Lord. I have a uh, Friday morning Bible study that's been going on about, I guess, 18 years. And the... the guys know me pretty well, and I feel pretty safe uh, with, with these guys. And Friday morning, I, I did something I haven't done in a long time. I went in and I, I dumped. And uh, it wasn't spiritual, it wasn't biblical or anything, but it just where I was. And the night before, I'd, I'd been at uh, Juwan's uh, funeral service over at OBC, and uh, it just was a really hard night, uh, and just uh, sitting there by his casket, uh, I wound up on the stage being a part of the surface and uh, watching his family as they closed the casket, just uh, the image just stuck with me, and uh, I woke up Friday morning angry and fighting feelings uh, that nothing we do is going to change this. And so I kind of whined to my group and complained and you know, said I didn't think people really cared and yada, yada, yada. And 
Uh, they gave me some good feedback. And, but I went out of there, and I really wasn't doing much better, kind of stumbled through the day. Around 4, I called a pastor friend who lives in Indiana, and he, we were talking about just some, fighting this feeling of pessimism I had as, as we try to protect these kids. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that the swim season's starting up again, and, you know, that, that's going to be a very intensive time. Just worry that we're going to lose another kid. Um, and he said, you know, I think the two most important things a man can ever do is worship and grieve. He said, how are you doing at that? I thought, man, I need to listen to that. That's a, that's a good word. Uh, two most important things a man can do, worship and grieve. Well, grieving is important. I'm not sure really I do know how well to do that. Um, but worship is what we're talking about tonight. How, how do you keep going when life is very hard or frustrating or unfair or unjust or painful? I think worship is one of the primary answers. David certainly understands that. David, his life is filled with blessing and challenge. He's a wonderful king, a great warrior, and all of that. He's got a terrible marriage. His family is incredibly dysfunctional. He's betrayed by his closest friends. Um, He has a very painful life. And you see this sprinkled through the Psalms. The book of Psalms, Israel's hymn book, he wrote half of them. And you can see a man groping towards God in the midst of suffering and and crying out, You are my shepherd, I won't want when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And praising God for rescuing him, crying out when his enemies are about to engulf him. David understood that worship is how we get through a harsh and bloody world. Um, well, Israel's worship is, was centered on the Ark of the Covenant. And, and I, I try to find a little picture there um, of what they think it might have been like. Uh, God gives instructions about the Ark. Uh, it was about four by three feet wide, covered with gold. There were two angelic uh, beings on the top of it. And God's presence uh, rested in the, in the middle of it. Uh, and it was, there were two poles on either side that... The ark was to be carried with. And God said this, Exodus 25, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I'll speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So in the old covenant, this was where God's presence dwelt, and all of the worship of Israel was built around approaching that presence. So half the book of uh, Exodus and all the book of Leviticus is about Worship and how Israel is to be a worshiping community. And if you've ever read the, the first books of the Bible, when they would go out, they'd follow the ark. The ark had the holiest place in the tabernacle. When they would go into the promised land, they'd follow the ark. When they wanted guidance, they'd go sit by the ark. God's presence and worshiping God's presence was the center of Israel's communal life. Well, by the time we, we get to King Saul, the ark has disappeared. And and when you think of how central Israel's worship was in the beginning, the fact that this happens is is staggering. 
the Philistines steal it, and they, there's a mother of a priest giving birth at the time the ark is stolen, and the mother is so upset, she changes the name of her child because the ark is gone. And she says, no, I want you to call the child Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. That still can happen to God's people. I know we're in a different covenant. I know there's a sense in which we're sons and daughters by the work of the cross, and the presence of God is in all of us, and when we gather in a unique way. But, but there is still a sense when God's presence can escape us. His manifest presence can be lost. We can lose our passion in, in worship. Well, many years pass, about half of a generation, and the Philistines decide they don't want the ark because they all start dying and breaking out in hives and things like that, and they give it back. And Saul doesn't really know much about the ark. The priests don't know anything about the ark. And so they, they hide it in some guy named Abinadab's house. And it sits there for 20 years in the basement, you know, by the Christmas decorations. I mean, they don't, it's just like the ark of God. It's just like forgotten. And Israel's worship declines. So David knows that one of the first things he has to do if he's going to lead Israel into her future is to restore worship. And so that's what he does. And it's very interesting. Our story begins, he takes 30,000 men. And I think I have a map in there. If we could pop that up there. Um, Remember, the Philistines owned all that part or had control over that part of the land. The ark had been captured way up north. David... um, eventually wants to take the ark back to Jerusalem. Um, and and it's, a, it's about a five-mile trek from where the ark uh, was at this time. And, and it's undefended territory. And so he brings 30,000 soldiers to get this four-foot box. And I think there's a principle there. David has a sense that when he goes to get the ark, he will be contested. That there will be a fight and that he will encounter resistance. Because that land was a no man's land and it was a, it was a battle zone. And I think the principle is this. When you come to a point in your life, and maybe you're not here tonight, maybe you are here tonight, but you you are realizing that your own personal worship, your own love relationship with the God who created you and saved you, when you come to the point where you realize that is not where I want it to be. I have worshipped other gods. I have allowed other, other powers to come into my life. It's not where I want to be. I'm here tonight. Of all the things I could be doing on a beautiful Sunday night, I came here tonight because I want to move back towards God. I want Him to be central. I want to worship Him again. There will be a fight. It will not be easy to make that move because there are powers in the world, the spiritual world, that don't want you to go back. So David, he goes and he, and he gets the ark and he puts it on a new cart. 
And then, and then there's this really troubling part of the story. He, they're worshiping with all these instruments. He's put together this world-class praise band, all the best worshipers in Israel, and they're making merry, and they're rocking the house. I spent the afternoon with, with the OBC, and uh, you know they have this wonderful praise band and Pentecostal worship, and they're dancing and singing, and it kind of reminded me of what this might have, might have looked like. It was you know really, really powerful worship, and then something terrible happens. Uzzah reaches out to touch the ark and God strikes him dead. Why? Well, two reasons as far as as I can tell. God gives very explicit instruction in the Old Testament about worship. One of them is, all this is in the book of Exodus, that only Levites are supposed to carry the ark. Uzzah wasn't a Levite. And the ark was supposed to be carried on poles, not on a cart, because carts tip. And so David evidently got kind of in a hurry. He wanted to get this thing back, and, and so he doesn't really pay attention to the details And he puts a man at risk and does the right thing in a wrong way. And I think this side of this story, I think there's a couple of lessons that we might learn here. Because Uzzah is trying to do the right thing. But he's not the right guy. And when you put a good guy in the wrong place, you kill him. I think that's the spiritual principle of a story like that. When you take a a good person, but you don't get them into the place in which they're intended to flourish, they die spiritually. I think that has a little bit of a ramification for just us as a little worshiping community here. In the Old Testament, one thing's very clear. God gives worship leaders to the people of God so that they can worship. He's very clear about that. And in Exodus 33, there's this great scene where they actually pray over the worship leaders and fill them with the Spirit so that they could could lead in worship. And so one of the things I want to say to you tonight is, God cares about who leads us in worship. He has called some of us to help do that, and some of us, he said, it's not time for you to do that. And I want want to ask you, if you have worship gifts, if you play or sing, if there's something God has put on your heart, I want to ask you, would you at least pray about whether or not you could help us in worship. About whether or not you're one of the people that could lead us in the presence of of God. Think about that. But I think there's a broader principle here too, and it's this. If your life is not aligned correctly with what God wants you to be doing, if, if you are in a position that's not shaped around your gifting and calling, if you're walking in a way that does not according to God's design, 
you will not flourish. There will be spiritual death. And you won't worship. The spiritual principle, I think, that emerges from this story is that when we are aligned with God rightly and we are the right people in the right place and doing the things that God has called us to be about and to do, we flourish and He flourishes and our life is worship. Now, I think there's another lesson here that's kind of a hard one. And this is a hard story for us. David does not seem to understand who he is dealing with. Don't understand why that is, but he does not seem to understand anything about the holiness of the presence that is in this ark. And so he sort of throws together a process to get the ark quickly back to Jerusalem, maybe so this great national artifact could be there and he could start this new regime and it would look good in PR and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't know who he's dealing with. And there are terrible consequences for that. Now, maybe we could think of it like this. Suppose that you're rewiring your bathroom and you tear down the wall and you decide that that you are going to uh, fix the wiring. For some reason, you're pretty confident, so you don't turn the power off and, and you start pulling the plugs off and you realize that the wires are hot. Wouldn't it make sense to pay respect to the wire that's hot? I think God's holiness is like that. It's not a bad thing. It's not a destructive thing. Holy, electricity isn't a bad thing. But you better pay attention when the wire's hot. See, one of the things, and I think this is so hard for us to understand in, in the New Covenant, we do boldly approach God. It says that in Hebrews 4.16. We call God Abba, Father. We're covered with His blood. We're covered with grace. He's our beloved Daddy. We can never lose that tenderness. He loves us more than, than, than we'd ever imagine. But the book of Hebrews also says that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And somehow we have to hold these two things together that when you really start to worship... You may at times encounter a baptism of his love and joy and and affection and be filled with, with, with wonderful feelings of intimacy. That happens in worship. But you also may encounter a kind of holy terror and a deep discomfort about your own sin. And I know you might be thinking, well, why this is a new covenant. This is about grace. How could that God of grace do that in the same way that an oncologist will diagnose your cancer so that you may be healed in a godly worship service? When you come in, that can happen to you, too. Not because God is mean, not because God wants to punish you. God wants to diagnose the destructive sin in your soul. And David doesn't seem to understand this. This often happens in times of revival. One historian writes, he says, In revival, certain phenomena begin to manifest themselves. 
men and women are not only convicted of sin, but they're convicted by an agony with respect to sin. It is not merely that they're sinners and that they must believe in the Savior. It comes to them with such overwhelming force that they become maybe even physically ill. This agony, this terrible conviction, you may get that in revival. People may cry and sob, but it doesn't always stop at that. Sometimes people are so convicted and feel the power of the Spirit to such an extent that they faint and fall to the ground. Sometimes there are even physical convulsions. Sometimes people fall into a state of unconsciousness and may remain like that for hours. That's part of the presence of God. Sometimes we encounter his peace and love and joy. Sometimes we encounter his conviction. But that's what happens when we come into his presence and worship. So, David hits pause. He's confused. He drops the ark off at a friend's house. Um, A guy named Obed-Edom the Gittite, however you say that. What's interesting about that is Obed-Edom literally means one who serves the god Edom. Edom was one of the Palestinian gods. He's a Gittite, so he's from Gath, which is one of the Philistine cities. This man is not part of Israel. This man is not a Hebrew. This man is not someone who's been a part of God's covenant promises. And God says, we're going to put the ark there for a while. And we're going to bless his socks off. King of Israel, disaster. Some guy with a funny name. Sounds like a sinner for the next. He opened oh, Edom. Blessing. I learned two things from that. One is, I think it's foreshadowing the broadness of the gospel that God wants to bring everyone into the kingdom. Second thing is, King David spent a year in Gath when he was running from Saul. This man probably fell in love with David's God while he was in Gath became a friend of David. And so of all the people David could think of at this time to put the ark, he thinks of this friend. And he's just this humble guy who has no idea what he's got, approaches it with humility and love, and God blows him away with blessing. Isn't that a good picture of what God does? In a way, we're all Obed-Edom. So, David hears about this. He decides the cooling off period's done. And uh, he goes and gets the ark. He comes back rejoicing. The book of 1 Chronicles fills in the details a little more. Uh, it says that this time the Levites, Levites carried the ark of God upon their shoulders with the poles. Uh, and this time David is doing the right thing, the wrong, or rather the right way. Two lessons here and then we'll, we'll close. This is bloody. Can you, can you kind of, I mean, I can't quite vision. Did I have a slide about the, the journey? I don't know if we, uh, that, that's next. Um, there. So now they're doing it the right way. And I, I don't know if we can see there, but every six steps they sacrifice an animal. One that's like really slow. I mean, I thought taking my kids on vacation was hard. You know, (laughs) I got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) But this is like really slow. But two, it's like really bloody. There's blood everywhere. What's the principle? He's a holy God, and you approach him through the sacrifice. What does it mean to us? 
cross needs to be the center of our worship. We worship because we're forgiven. I was getting ready this morning, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I remember this dumb thing I did when I was 14. And as you might imagine, it's a long time ago. And the little chattering box goes, you know, how on earth can you get up in the pulpit twice today when you did that when you were 14? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. I've been having some problems with my back and my neck and I, for about five months, and I haven't been able to get any relief, tried all these different things. A friend of mine says, would you go see my chiropractor? I'm not a brave person. Chiropractors scare me. Okay, you know, the neck thing, the cracking, I just get scared. So I said, no, 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 no. Well, long story short, I go to see the chiropractor. Yes. And after a week, I feel a lot better. I'm relieved from pain uh, in ways that I haven't been in months. And you know what my initial response is? I'm going to see him tomorrow. I'm going to tell him, thank you for healing me. You know why we worship? Because he's realigned us. He's healing us. And so we just, we just want to say, thank you. I've done so many stupid things, Lord. Thank you for your healing. Well, now, this is the fun part. David dances. Go ahead, show the, the pornographic uh, picture here. Okay. <laughs> Um, so what I thought I'd do now, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> what do we do with that? You know, David is so passionate in his, in his worship that he, that he dances. And on the one hand, I don't, I don't want to say, and, and brothers and sisters, we're going to crank up the worship band now and out of your seats because if you love the Lord, you're going to boogie. You know, that, that's, I'm not going to say that. Passion is expressed in a lot of ways, right? My mother-in-law was a devout Catholic. When she took the Eucharist, she always wept. She met God profoundly in a quiet, simple way like that. I don't want to make a new law about how worship must look. I take yoga with my wife, Sandy, and when the instructor says, you know, in this posture you can dance, uh, my mind says, not on your life, okay? (laughs) So I I get kind of the, the reaction to dancing. However... Okay, got that, got that part? Why don't we? Davis Tarwater, 2012, third week of July. He's trying out for the Olympic team. He's swimming at 7 o'clock in Omaha. We in the service. Davis's parents were very involved in the church at that time. So was he when he was in town. So we go upstairs, put it on the big screen TV, watch. There's about, I don't know, 10 of us in the room. Watch Davis swim the 200 fly to his last chance to make the Olympic team. And the gun goes, the buzzer goes off, and we're out of our seats, and we're yelling at that screen. I, I never understand why I yell at plasma, but somehow you think it helps. So we're yelling at the screen. We're hugging each other. We're cheering And it didn't look like he made it. And the next morning, his mom calls and says, he's going to London. And I wept, and I danced. Why did I do that? 
because I love Davis, and he just did something great. And that's why David danced. He loves God, and his God does something great. Well, on Wednesday, I had the opportunity of attending the Change Center launch that we just talked about. It was really a a beautiful, powerful moment over there at OBC, and I was so encouraged, so thankful for the people here that have been a part of that. It was a great day, great day. But Friday after Jawan's funeral, my hope just started to seep away. I, I don't know. I just lost it. And I went into my office on Friday morning, and I had this graphic about the change center, and I, I threw it away. And I, I just said, Lord, it's not going to help. No matter how many things we do, how many hours I spend at the pool this summer with kids from Park Ridge and everywhere else, the gangs are going to get in a feud and just start spraying parks. Why, why even bother? And I'm not proud of that, but that's where I was. And I kind of stayed in a funk there for, for quite a while. And as I, I started to pray about it, and it, the Lord said something like this. He said, you know, Doug, you and Daryl Arnold have become friends. And your churches are becoming friends. Because they have something to teach you, and you have something to teach them. And here's something they can teach you. And then I I remembered very distinctly on Thursday night, we're standing there, the casket of the little boys there, and and in the African-American funerals, you close the casket, the parents come up, the dear father passes out, the mother wails, it was just horrible. Daryl is sobbing before he preaches. And I felt the Lord say, he's done this 50 times, how does he keep going? And I remember. I remember what happened that night after the casket was closed. We worshipped. And we grieved. And that, I think, is why we worship. Because I don't know how we keep going if we don't.